0: This episode is dedicated to Professor John Henry, author of one of the most comprehensive studies into the big cat phenomenon, Pumas in the Grampians. You're listening to Missing Panther.
1: were trail bike riding i would have been doing 30 40 k's an hour i just saw this out of the corner of my eye just something black and moving at speed coming towards me from the left so i started to increase speed getting to 60 70 k's an hour it's still there i
2: said to him pete why didn't you shoot it and he said to me he said well i only had a little single shot 22 rifle he said no, i wasn't sure i was going to kill it
3: I had been out dirt bike riding out the back of Anglesine Aries Inlet. We'd looked over and noticed that there was something quite large feeding on something. that leaped out in front of us, so we had quite an unobstructed view of this big cat. Both of our mouths were open and we were like, oh my God, what have we just seen? Hello, Ben. It's Robin. I'm just going to let you know that my daughter had just seen a panther up in the Grand Canyon.
4: And if you're interested, give me a call back. Thank you.
1: The Australian Black Panther, an urban legend emerging from bushland. I was shook, mate. It took me about two
5: seconds to I started filming and then I was gobsmacked, mate.
6: I came in and I told my wife
5: what had
1: happened and
7: she said, Oh, you're dreaming. Couldn't have happened. We're in Australia. I said, Yes, but it did happen.
1: It's not the first of its kind since the mid-1800s. Stories have abounded about big bush cats in a country that's not supposed to have any in the wild. Too
8: many people now for too long have reported seeing panthers or some other big cat roaming the Australian bush.
9: Many people say we won't go out at night. If
8: those big cats do exist out there, one theory is they were released from private zoos almost 20 years ago when tighter government controls were introduced.
10: I know that You know, a lot of people really just want to believe that there is this species of of something unidentified that they have been lucky enough to see and spot. What are your thoughts on those beliefs?
6: I suppose
9: anything is possible and
6: and we have to respect um, the claims and the, the things that people see and photograph and go through that scientific approach to collecting the evidence.
9: Behind
8: the scenes, government departments have secretly acknowledged the big cat's existence in internal
6: paperwork. We have found no conclusive evidence of a a cat as described.
8: Conclusive proof will be the day when someone kills or
6: captures one.
11: Irrefutable proof of the existence of big cats is not far away.
0: There really is something incredible about the thought that big cats may be roaming in the australian bush although definitive proof still evades us there's just way too many stories from credible witnesses to dismiss not to mention all the signs and traces they've left behind before we begin part two of big cats victoria I wanted to spend a little time to reflect on some of the stories that still raise a lot of unanswered questions. So let's have a look back at some of the ground we've covered and a few new additions that came to my attention after some of the episodes were released. When I'm contacted by a farmer who shares their experience involving the unusual nature of a stock kill, I believe it's worth hearing them out. But when these stories are backed up by a stock kill investigator, it definitely gets my attention. It's just unfortunate that very few of these experts take the next step to report on what they see. The risk of spoiling any future employment or a well-polished reputation might be too high. Well, a New South Wales district veterinarian named Keith Hart was one expert who showed no fear in the face of a tarnished reputation when he had to examine several pieces of hard evidence thrown in front of him.
8: I've had done more autopsies on ruminants than you've had hot dinners, so I know my know my way in and out of a of a carcass very very well. But I had never ever seen in all that time, and I've done, you know, probably thousands of goat autopsies in my in my 38 year career. I had never ever seen a carcass that was killed like that goat. Now you, you you've got to ask yourself as I did, and as the people who are with me asked. What is there in the Australian bush that's capable of doing that? And the answer comes back, nothing. There's something out there capable of killing animals in a way that I've never seen before. This is not in our conventional suite of pest animals or native predators in Australia. There is no way a
0: dog could do that,
8: given the size of it and the the, the kind of incisions that were made in the muscle that had to be a big cat.
0: Dr Hart wasn't alone with what he saw, unusual stock kills were happening right across the country. These next few reports are directly from farmers in the Gibson region, who live within a few kilometres from each other. They had the government officials so nervous it spurred them into action to organise a full-scale panther hunt by helicopter, using high-tech heat-sensing equipment hoping to track down and take out these big cats, which is also what one of the government's very own had concluded. One sheep farmer in this district lost close to 500 sheep in the past two years. The department declined to speak about
5: the issue on camera. I was getting one to two kills a day, every day. You'd swear that someone had scun them and and then boned the meat off the bone. With no guts, no intestines there, no wool plucked out and all the bones licked clean. There's nothing in Australia that will do that. Mate, I have seen a lot of things in my life, hunting since I was a kid and I've never seen kill, you know, sheep killed like this in my whole life. These carcasses that were taken on our place, you could have put them back together. They were cleaned out and uh, bones were licked, you know, everything was just perfectly clean. You
6: yeah, know, I've seen a lot of things get killed in my lifetime, I said, but I've never seen anything that kills like this thing does. We went to a lot of trouble, you know, like we had bloody, we had goats tied up out in the paddock with sea sand all around them, go you know, in case something comes up to get a footprint,
5: what animal can clean a sheep out overnight? No wild domestic cat can not clean up a whole sheep. There was two good thing puncher marks in some of the skulls.
0: When one of the government's very own highly regarded stock kill investigators and highly experienced bushman was silenced by his superiors for daring to use the term "big cats" around headquarters, it certainly raises suspicion as to what they were so concerned about. The
6: most sort of compelling part of of Ron's story was the, the fact that he
3: he had the backing of a, a DPI official who had a diary with quite detailed anecdotes and descriptions of, of big cats
6: that he'd seen.
3: But he was gagged by the hierarchy of the organisation because, you know, his, his testimony contradicted the official line. If he said he was a believer and he had, had that at that evidence. He was, you know, running a line that was contrary to to the official line and and basically it was a situation of, you know, if he spoke out, he was going to be sacked.
0: In some areas, big cat sightings and stock killing were so frequent, the community themselves would take action. Some would even go as far as collecting hair and scat samples and send them away for analysis at their own expense. But when the results that kept coming back were questionable, they began to wonder if they were getting their money's worth. So in several separate cases across Australia, these community members obtained actual big cat hair and scat samples from private zoos to test the lab's credibility.
12: They had
5: two pet pumas walking around. This bloke took swabs up there because he knew they were there and swabbed them. Well, one puma, a little young female, and they gave him a pinch of hair, sent it in to be analysed and all of it come up negative which we knew it wasn't Eastern Grey Kangaroo, but the hair came back as Eastern Grey Kangaroo, and it wasn't, it was straight off this puma. So it makes you wonder, doesn't it?
9: I collected a leopard scat from a private zoo and sent it away, and it came back as a dog that had been eating swamp wallaby. It was the real thing, but it came back as dog. This is the same lab, just all full of lies. Oh, I was not happy.
6: I personally spoke with the person who did that testing and I said, well, why wouldn't you say it's a cat? I got told it wasn't worth their job to do that. In Australia, I think if you're, um, if you're a scientist and, and your livelihood depends on finances from government departments and you disagree with the formal line, and this could be with any formal line with any subject matter, I think you hang yourself out in a place that might be difficult.
0: The question of where big cats may have come from has always been a highly debated topic. But the truth is, no matter what you believe about their origin, it seems there's more than one possibility. One of the most popular theories is that American soldiers brought pumas and panthers as mascots to Australia in World War II, then went on to release them when they had to go off to fight in the war. Biology professor John Henry was able to conduct a study on this in the 70s, which was focused on the Grampians National Park in Victoria. John was able to speak directly with US soldiers to get to the bottom of it.
13: We asked an open question to start with, did you have mascots? And then we followed up and said, well, uh, what about uh, big cats? Did you have anything like that as a mascot? And they, they were silent on that, except for one uh, warrant officer who said where they were based, where his group was based, He was aware that there were Puma mascots within his group. There's a high probability that there were, uh, at that time, big cats, probably Pumas in the Grand
0: John's study was later supported by many other stories and sightings right up to this very day.
14: Uh, I lived up there at the right in, in sort of the, uh, at the foot of the Grampage. We knew that the cat was there because we'd seen it and heard it. And it had frightened the horses and had all the dogs barking one night and it'd uh, oh, give a, a terrific scream that it'd make your blood curdle.
9: You know, my grandmother always spoke about being surprised at seeing these huge cats being led around like dogs. And their choice was pretty much either put them down or try and release them. She saw them, put them back in the vehicle. They went away. When they came back that night, uh, they didn't have the cats. They brought the mountain lions and took them straight down to Victoria Valley and released them.
0: After releasing episode two on the US mascots, someone put me in touch with Dennis, whose dad was an American soldier who was based here in Australia throughout World War II. Dennis's dad loved the country so much, he ended up coming back and calling it home. Dennis talks about his father's first-hand accounts of puma mascots that were released at the end of the war.
15: My dad was based at Horsham, or Ballarat and Horsham. dad was in the Army Air Force, but at that time he was based at the Army camp at Horsham. So he was a dead set yank. I was born in America, or I came to Australia when I was only three months old, so Um, we were talking one night and we were talking about pumas and that's when he told us about the ones we had let go. Well he just said they were a Puma and being a Yank, I suppose he'd know what he was talking about. The, the soldiers that were based at Horsham had Pumas as pets, or as mascots.
12: Look,
15: to be quite honest, he never spoke anything about the war. This is the only thing that came out of the war stories. There was one story about him getting bombed when he was cooking dinner or something, but that and the Puma story is the only two things he ever spoke about. Well apparently they brought them out. They were, only, they were only cubs when he, when he saw them released. Not, he said they weren't full grown, they were only babies. He told me that at the end of the war they had nowhere to go. They couldn't take him back home, apparently, uh, so they just let him go. He said, "But they 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 fed him for a couple of days, and they just didn't come back the third day." Dad was dead serious, seriously about everything he did. He just said that the um, army base just let him go. Well there's plenty of sightings, I've heard of sightings around here A mother with two cubs crossing the road up near King Lake A bloke when he used to go deer shooting at night up around the back of Marysville And he used to look something about going across his path He turned, looked at him, his eyes were just yellow, gold in the in the spotlight uh, And he just all he saw of it was a big black tail disappearing into the bush And he never saw it, they didn't, They packed up after that and come home, they weren't saying there. The mountains around here, there's blokes going up here and got lost, the bushes that thick. You wouldn't know they were there, there's, there's just no way, unless you actually saw them and photographed them, you wouldn't know they were there. Anything could be. Anything could be up in there.
0: Another theory of their origin is that they may have escaped from zoos or travelling circuses, which isn't too hard to believe considering all kinds of wildlife have escaped from zoos over the years. Craig Bullen, whose family has a long history of housing exotic wildlife, was happy to tell me of the time when five lions escaped their enclosure in Western Sydney.
10: I remember it as plain as day. Five got out, we shot one and we caught the other four. The fence to the compounds was cut. We've had animals escape, whatever they'll be. We've had everything at some point. Most zoos have had something get out at some point.
0: There's an abundance of stories about traveling circus accidents in Australia over the years where animals of all types have escaped, including big cats. Most of them either shot dead or recaptured. But it's the stories about the ones that get away that I find even more interesting. Robert Perry, from the well-known Perry Brothers Circuses, was more than happy to tell me of a panther escape that his father had passed down to him years after the incident.
15: He was talking about a potentially panther he was talking about. The only thing he said that it could have escaped. I know I was in the Glen Innes area at the time. I different time, he talking about the Emerald Panther. could have got out from the circus there. It could have been one of Harry's. I heard him say it, you know. You know, you hear these things, don't you? And um, I suppose anything's possible.
0: And as always, wherever there was a story of big cats escaping or being released, there always seemed to be credible sightings that matched up. Only a matter of kilometres from where Robert Perry claimed his dad may have lost a panther, a bushman from Emmerville by the name of Donald saw a big cat in what would have to be the earliest first-hand account I have on record. In 1958, Donald was on horseback when he came across something large and black. This animal was later on labelled by the community, the Emmerville Panther.
14: It was just on dusk. Two kangaroos come flying past me and I propped and there it was in front of me the cat. He would have been about two foot six tall but about five foot long and he had a very long tail. That's one distinct thing that he had. I stared him in the eye for, for I don't know how long. I would have been about two metres from him. He was just off the track a little bit. It was a clearing. He, there was no mistake what we'd seen. The next day, back along the track, we come onto a dead kangaroo. He hadn't long been killed, and he had his head chewed right off. He had no head, right? And we went on to where we were working. And when we come back that afternoon, a whole lot of that kangaroo was gone. We were on the river once fishing, and we, we heard it nearly all night. He was in the hills, and we could hear him. And it was something that we didn't know uh, what it was, definitely. And he, it was a very, very eerie sound, actually. After that, my father and myself were mustering cattle out further and we'd come in about dark, it was, and we had pack horses and that, you know. And uh, Anyway, my father said we were lying in bed, lying here in the swags, and he said, i seen something today, I don't know what it was. And he was a very... Uh, well, had been in the bush all his life, you know. Anyway, he took me back the next day and guess what it was? A dead monkey. Yes, it was a dead monkey. He was red with a white strip up its back. Yeah, that was a strange one. Really strange one.
0: In a previous episode, I had a lengthy chat with herpetologist Richard Wells about his sightings, and he reminded me of another potential theory of big cats getting into the Australian bush.
10: Up until about 1960, there were no restrictions on leopards and lions and tigers and jaguars and just about any cat in the world being brought into Australia as a pet. I mean, they were they were regularly brought into Australia, or periodically brought into Australia, and weren't rare in the 19th century by any means. They, you could buy a, a baby tiger or a baby leopard or a baby uh, jaguar, and and they were imported into Australia as pets. Now that was right up to about 1960, and I mean, uh, it was there were still people with pet leopards in the 1950s. There was no doubt about that, so where did they go did they did they all just die quietly like you know a budgie in a cage that no one wants to feed anymore i don't know and they could you know when you keep animals in captivity it's not unusual for them to get away periodically you
4: know
0: earlier in the year i contacted historian and co-author of snarls from the tea tree dr david waldron After seeing him on a news story about the Australian panther.
5: Joining us from Melbourne is historian and folklorist David Waldron. Good morning to you, David. Now, that footage had lots of people intrigued for
12: days. Mm.
0: Dr. Waldron got me up to speed with some of his research and about an unregulated trade of exotic wildlife in Australia, including big cats. There's
7: no shortage of ways in which big cats could get in the country in the 19th century. The circuses are poorly run. There's numerous escapes from the circuses that are documented in papers and in police reports and so on. There's so many ways. Well, the evidence I mainly looked off, and in terms of you know how far you want to take that evidence, I took it really. I was happy with just seeing that the classifieds had all these ads for different types of big cats and monkeys and things. There's people trying to order in leopards in Ballarat to uh, breed so they can use them for fancy bags and hats and things like that. Pubs are buying them as a way of uh, entertaining people. Rich people are buying them as pets. You had uh, the start of um, circuses and so on in the 1950s and 60s and in particular certainly Leon's Mammoth Circus with its travelling enormous menagerie um, attracted a lot of imitators in the 1870s. But I think the, the biggest place I see them being uh, used is in uh, pubs to attract people to come to your pub to see the tigers or whatever. I came across a story in Ballarat at the uh, Coliseum Theatre where they had a uh, tiger fighting a bull. It's sort of a bit of um, bull baiting but with a a young, what sounds like a not very healthy tiger. You certainly could look it up and in a sense that's I just think, okay look I'm seeing all these ads for big cats and things in the uh, papers that suggests to me that it's happening because why else would you put an ad in the paper? It's quite common. What's usually happening is people coming to Australia are stopping in Africa, they're stopping in India, they're stopping in Indonesia, and there's an exotic animal trade there. You know, there's exotic animal trade that is a problem in Britain at the time, you know, really worldwide. So people are going to markets, they're buying pet monkeys and things. There's quite a bit of market for people to go out hunting big cats and then selling their cubs at the docks. You go out, you know, someone hunts a big, the tiger, they find some tiger cubs, they're worth big money. You know, because you put a lot of effort on this whole notion of where did they come from, I think that's not an issue. If they're there, there's plenty of places they could have come from. The issue is, you know, getting out there and finding the, uh, the evidence.
0: Dr Waldron encouraged me to dig around in classified ads from very old Australian newspapers. Although the research was quite tedious, the results were very interesting. For sale, two Bengal panthers, male and female, quite young and in beautiful condition. will be selling by auction at half
11: past two at the Metropolitan Hotel in Pitt Street. They're now on view in the garden of the above hotel where they can be inspected.
16: For sale, a fine two-thirds grown female Bengal leopard and four salon deer. The above are all in splendid condition.
5: For sale, one Bengal hunting leopard, Price is 80 pounds, come to the punt at Footscray Docks.
0: Are these classified ads the most concrete evidence for the origin of big cats? If historically big cats have been escaping enclosures of so-called commercial operations, can we really trust them in the care of private owners? Especially those who made the purchase on a cheery Sunday afternoon at the Metropolitan? What happened when these potentially impulsive purchases got too big, too wild or just too expensive to feed? And with all these unregulated sales, was anyone keeping track of any breeding? Some of the answers to these questions might lie in more recent stories. I had a, an old friend, who was a
8: taxidermist, he wanted me to take him out to this
0: Frenchman's property. I think it was in, out of Mulgawa.
17: I, I got a tour through his house and, and around the grounds of the, you know, his private animal collection. Someone was putting pressure on him to reduce his numbers because they were all having babies. Rumour has it is that he was selling kittens and cubs and God knows what else to whoever could take
0: them. I managed to speak with a staff member who worked inside this very same zoo. Gary shared with me some of the dodgy practices he had to witness over the years and what he suspected might be going on.
17: There was one female black panther. She was showing big time in the belly. She was getting ready to, to lay out a litter. She disappeared overnight and she was close to birth. I never ever got an answer as to what happened to, to that female
6: ever it was it, it's been moved along
17: if he was releasing any animals i think it was first and foremost vanity you know he didn't want people to to see that there were mistreated animals
0: if big cats somehow getting out of their enclosures undetected, whether escaping or being released, sounds a little too hard to believe, then how do you explain the unclaimed lion on the loose in Broken Hill back in 1985? To this day, *Barrier Daily Truth* photojournalist, Alan, can only speculate at how the seemingly impossible happened right in front of him.
11: I got the phone call and he said, get yourself out there, there's a lion loose. I said, oh, where the bloody hell did it come from? Nobody knew where it came from. We sort of figured somebody must have had it in their backyard and some somewhere like a private zoo. You can't just have a line and not register it, unless you've under the, under the under the counter, like I reckon this thing was.
0: So, what does all this mean? Does it definitively prove the existence of big cats roaming in our bushland? No, it doesn't, but it certainly raises more questions than answers, and potentially validates many of the big cat sightings we still hear today and in my view, warrants the continuation of this investigation, which I'll be doing in this part two episode of Big Cats Victoria. Far northwest of Victoria, a freight train driver by the name of Daryl has seen hundreds of animals cross over the rails in his time. With a tuned-in eye, Daryl always had a good idea of what he was looking at from quite a distance. But this day, he saw something that should never have been there.
11: Back then, you're actually
0: called a locomotive engineer,
11: Class One. I was working with the what was called the Victorian Railways back then obviously in the bush uh, livestock and wildlife are relatively common on the tracks they certainly like to get in there because the uh, undergrowth is let wild so there's often things in there they'll find that they don't get in the fields grazing so um, you know we get the usual kangaroos wallabies snakes and i guess in urban areas cats and dogs and people (laughs) Generally with livestock, they've broken through fences and gotten to the rail reserve, whereas the uh, wildlife tends to just, in most of my experience, just travel through from one area to another. Obviously collisions happen and uh, usually with pretty um, unpleasant results for the uh, animals involved because most locos weigh, oh, I guess between 80 and 130 tons. uh, So traveling at speed, it usually doesn't end well for uh, anything that gets in the way. Well, I recall we were running a freight train or a goods train as they were known back then, uh, south of Oyun's. We're on what's known as the B-Class diesel, which has a, a nose and a clear view of the track ahead. So there's, beside the nose, there's no real obstruction at the view. We were heading south, probably traveling at the usual 45, 50 miles per hour. Due to the, uh, the condition of the wheat at the time, it would have been uh, probably October. Your daylight saving was around then. It would have been six or seven in the evening when this uh, creature just appeared out of the east side of the track went up 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 and over without ever looking at us which was interesting considering how large the locomotive would appear to it and uh, down onto the west side and into the wheat field and took off so yeah it was completely black and judging from the fact that its head was at one split second over the top of one rail and the tail which was flaccid was over the top of the other rail so that's five foot three inches apart it was uh, quite solid sleek it was the coat was a sort of flattish black as i think it was probably quite dusty and uh, yeah very solid looking creature which when i saw it was you know it was quite a shock to see something like that out there I seem to recall looking at the driver after the, the creature had crossed the tracks and disappeared. I just said, did you see that? And he basically replied, yes, sure did. And um, we drew up level where it had gone into the wheat field and I was trying to see it in the wheat and I could see it moving through the wheat because it was creating a sort of a, the, it was parting the wheat as it went along. Well, fortunately for the situation, we have the perfect ruler on the ground right in front of us, and that's the gauge that the rails are apart. And when you're around, knowing that that's five foot three inches on the inside of the rails, and you're probably looking, I think it's about seven foot the width of a sleeper. So you've you've naturally got a a very handy um, scale ruler sitting on the ground in front of us. And because the animals tend to go up, up over the tracks, you get an immediate idea of just how big, you know, if you see a snake that goes from one end of a sleeper to another, you know that it's pushing seven foot long, so it's pretty damn big. It was clearly cat-like. It was, you know, if someone said what did it look like, I would say it looked like a black panther because it was way too big to be a cat, judging from the uh, the rails as a measurement.
0: Bianca contacted me about a sighting she and her friend Mel had while horse riding out in the Macedon Ranges. I was able to catch Bianca on the very day she saw the big cat while the memory was still fresh.
9: Today? Yeah, about, yeah, about 11 o'clock um, in the morning. Like, near enough, it might have been a little bit earlier. Because I've been in Macedon Ranges for you know 30 odd years. So i would heard about them, but you know you just go, oh yeah, people just see things and stuff, but like, we we ride up this fire trail every day and we see wallabies, kangaroos, echidnas you know, all, all the usual things wombats, koalas, sometimes changing trees. The horses actually looked up there and I, that makes me look, because we usually see a mob of kangaroos or something. And then yeah, just this big black and I was like oh it's not a cow it's not because the way it moved and because I was riding with another girl I was like look at that and she could it, it was going quite fast and then it kind of stopped and she goes I didn't see it I didn't see it then it turned around and ran back the other way and she's seen it and I said what do you think that is she goes that's a big cat and I said well it's a really big cat because from where we were I mean it looked big from there it was on a rise so we had a good vision of it and just the way it moved it was like and I was like did we just see what like everyone has spoken about. I can't believe my own eyes. <laughs> to the girl I was riding with Mel seen it too. So I was like, okay, so I'm, de- I'm definitely seeing this big black animal moving. I just kind of Googled and then found you guys on the um, podcast and I thought, oh, you, might be- you guys might be interested, but um, I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> it's only the horses because they see things for miles that um, caught my attention. Anyway, I'll, look, I'll let Mel know. She, I'm sure she would love to be in contact with you.
0: I got in touch with Mel to get her version of events.
18: We got the horses ready, as we usually do every morning, and started heading out to um, the back paddocks to go to the gate where we normally get out into the fire trail to go riding. And as we were probably not even 20 metres from the initial first gate we go through, Bianca, she says to me that, oh, what's that over there? And I'm like, over where? And she goes, over in the in the tree line. And I couldn't see anything initially. Um, they just go, see, it's running back now, the other way. I saw it run back the other way and I'm like, oh, what's that? And I'm thinking to myself, it's not a big dog, it's moving too fluidly. So I thought, it can't be a panther. And then I just went, it has to be. That's a black panther. And I just turned around to the anchor and said, that's a panther. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe my eyes. Um, first time I'd ever seen anything like it. I'd, I'd heard the stories, of, of heaps of stories from, you know, living in Victoria, people seeing panthers either down Gifland Way or you know, up in the and Ranges, or, you know, towards Ballarat and that. But I've never thought that it could be real. But when I, when I saw it, I just, I looked at its legs and everything. I'm like, its legs are too long and too thick for any other animal that's in the area. It was way too large for a feral cat. Like, I know feral cats can get relatively big, but this was, you know, easily 10 times the size of the largest feral cat I'd ever seen. And I've seen some pretty big feral cats. Like, this was huge.
0: Robin has spent a good part of her life in the Grampians region and had a story or two on big cats she wanted to share.
19: We often used to go up to the Grampians on the weekends. My husband at the time was driving along heading towards Horse in the early hours of the morning about 1am. According to him, he saw a large black like creature across the road, probably about 10 metres from him, 10, 20 metres, and he Woke me up and he told me what he'd seen, but actually I hadn't seen anything because I was asleep at the time. But I I believed him because he was like, you know, really in awe at what he'd seen. He was definitely certain he'd seen a panther. I had my own experience a couple of weeks later, again, in the Grampian region at a place, there's a mountain called Mount Abrupt. Now, we were heading home and it was getting onto dusk. I was looking out for kangaroos because I knew the kangaroos would come out getting on, on dusk. So I'm watching out for, for kangaroos. And then on the left hand side of me, here was a large, solid cat in it. And it's glossy black, jet black. The thing that struck me, Ben, were size of the paws. It had paws like dinner plates and it was padding towards towards the car. We weren't going fast. We were probably sitting on about 40 or 50k. But it was so solid and straight away, without a question of a doubt, I knew exactly it was a panda. Without a shadow of a doubt, I know 100% what I had seen.
0: There seems to be a growing number of Facebook pages for big cat enthusiasts, especially from Victoria. Sarah Olsep, who runs one of these pages, Strange Creatures of Victoria, gets flooded with big cat accounts and spends every spare moment she can to go out and set up trail cameras. I was interested to hear Sarah tell me what people had been reporting to her lately.
16: So I'm based in Geelong, so being in Geelong, the Otways, the Brisbane ranges is really quite close so I can be in the bush within 30 to 40 minutes. So the animals that most people are reporting, they fit the description of a black leopard, so they see a big black animal, you know, quite stocky, the size of German shepherds, with a big box like head. Um, most of the eye shine that people have seen is it's quite wide and it's yellow in appearance. Then they also note that they've got these whopping big long tails that hang down to the ground before they loop up on the tip. The animal, it's like as long as their car as it's wide. These animals are close to two metres long if you go from the nose to the tip of the tail. So when you're thinking of feral cats or things like that, it's impossible for them to get to that size.
0: Sarah was kind enough to share a couple of reports she received in recent months.
16: At the start of the year, I was in contact with Claire with a sighting that she had. So she's from the Grampians region.
0: It
4: was last summer and we have a huge hedge where our laundry window is and it's an open paddock. I got up for something and a quarter of my eye see this large black thing running across the paddock and it was going too fast for something that is around here, but you could see the legs meeting in the middle when it was running. So I ran out the front door and down to the fence line where you could see the entire paddock. It was the length of a fully grown cow, but only about half way up or so. So I knew that it was big and long, but it had disappeared really quickly. It was about a month or two after that, we started hearing these strange noises and then I was taking the dogs out for their last loo break and it was about 11.30 um, and there was this huge deep growl it came from the paddock in the pines. It was like so deep, got the light out and then my husband came home from work and I told him what I'd heard, so he walked closer and as he's walking towards it, the growl went again and it was closer, so it had come towards us and he he's like, oh, let's go back inside.
16: So I headed up and I set up a couple of cameras. Within a week, um, she contacted me. She's seen this big black animal It's just sort of laying down in this one little sunny areas. And as she's sort of trying to get closer to see what it is, she stood on a stick and the animals heard her and it's got up and it's ran straight along the fence line and over the fence, then way off into the paddock. And it was this same big black cat-like animal She
4: seen. All the cattle just went berserk with the weird, loud, mewing strange noise that they do when something freaks them out. And all of them went off next door's the ones in the paddock front, and just, they went for a while and then it just went all quiet again.
16: She had heard of other sightings around the area, but a lot of people sort of don't like to talk about it.
0: Sarah put me in touch with Bobby, who saw something recently not far from Ballarat. July,
8: t- July 2020, yeah. So basically, I was with my wife and my two daughters, who are nine and four. So we were driving, I think it was around about 4.45. We left home and we just driving around uh, Ballarat just because we'd been at home all day and it's just getting a bit, you know, tiresome now with this whole COVID pandemic. So we thought we'd go out for a drive, which we started doing a bit more frequently anyway, just together, just go out for a drive and then come back. And just as we got to, there's a junction just waiting there to take a right and I could see on that right hand side just on the corner I knew straight away it was a black cat there was no doubt in my mind so there was no confusion or anything or what did I just see it was definitely a black cat it was just sat there so it was actually sitting at that point I think looking and then as I turned so then I started to drive around that corner and turn, turn right at that point it sort of was up on all four it looked again and then it just leapt into the bush and it was big. It was probably four to five times the size of a normal cat.
12: What
16: Bobby seen as he rounded the bend um, was a black cat. It was definitely a cat. The description, it was a lot larger than what your normal cat would be. The size that he was saying, um, you know, it, it puts it up sort of around the leopard size.
8: My daughter, my nine-year-old, also saw it. She was in the back and she was like looking and saying oh daddy did you see that and I'm like yeah did you see that and I asked my wife did you see that and she said no I didn't I just closed my eyes there for a second and I thought oh what yeah but it was definitely a black cat and I thought my first thing I think was I don't know black cats in Australia surely so I didn't think much of it and I just thought oh when I get home I'll google it then I went home and had a look and I thought hold on a minute this is a thing um, you know, there's some people who are saying they've seen it, other people are questioning, or there's people who are looking for these things, and I can't believe I've just seen this. I just thought, wow. But it was definitely, for me, like, it was a, it was a big black cat. It was definitely not a feral cat, it wasn't a small domestic cat, it wasn't a dog, it was a big cat, and it was looking right at the car.
16: It still sends shivers up their back and, and all that talking about it, but I think it's the amount of detail they go into and like a lot of these sightings, they they do happen in a split second. So it's almost like time freezes and goes in slow motion because you just like what what am I seeing? You know, and you're just trying to piece together what you're witnessing. With having the lockdown as well, a lot of people have jumped online. So. That's when a lot of reports actually come through because people are Googling stuff, they're finding things. But yeah, I mean, like it was frustrating, especially when you get a sighting that happened, you know, the night before or just hours prior. And it's fairly close and you can't get out there to check it. Like, I would have liked to have set up a few more cameras around those areas, but, you know, it's just the year we've had.
0: The legendary Yarra Valley Big Cat is one of Victoria's most intriguing mysteries. Sitting at the southern end of the Great Dividing Range, the Yarra Valley links into a vast tract of bushland, creating a nice little isolated corridor for all kinds of wildlife right up into New South Wales and beyond. Ken, a Yarra Valley local who owns and operates Yarra Valley Game Meats, has been a great resource for me throughout this podcast series. Ken got me up to speed on many stories behind the Yarra Valley Big Cat, as well as a story or two of his own.
20: This was Easter, on the Easter weekend break. And I just went out with a cup of coffee just down the edge of a fence line, just looking at the animals like I do at night time, just and actually at that time I had goats. The goats were kidding and I had a turn in mountain dog, a bitch, and she was asleep down laying on the ground with the with the goats and the cat was downwind of her so she wouldn't have picked up the scent. And it was just quietly walking along a fence line, trying to work out how to get underneath the fence or over the fence and, and it went up and down about three or four times and it was that when I was looking at it that I realised what it was. By the time I'd realised and convinced myself what it was, I rose back inside to get the rifle and I made the mistake of going in and felt safer with a semi-automatic shotgun and filled it full of SGs and solids and pocket full of SGs and solids and jumped on the quad bike. And as soon as it would have heard the quad bike start, that'd have been it. It was gone. Cats don't grow four foot long, have a tail four foot long, a tail two inches diameter, a head as big as a bowling ball, bright yellow eyes, paws were bigger than my hand. You know, I saw it put its paws on the fence. So, you know, I'm, I'm guessing my average idea of body weight, I've got a maroma now and it's 50 kilos, and this thing would have to have been that plus. It would have to be 50 kilos plus, without a doubt. And there was four dead animals I found in my place, plus a, a roo next door, it was a big roo, and all that was left was the tail, the back hoppers, the pelvic bone, and the skin. The skin had been taken off like it had been taken off with a knife, and that was killed the night before. Now you process elimination, what would do that? two experiences I had when I found what was left of um, goats when I had them. It was bug all left, it was just the skin, as if it had been taken off with a knife, still attached to the back hoppers or the back hindquarters, and no meat whatsoever left. All the ribs, some of the ribs you can see, it's been chewed off, it's crunched off, but few ribs were left on the base of the spine into the pelvis. The grass was flattened out for about uh, a three metre radius all around the carcass. What was left of it flattened out as if there'd been activity there all night, more than one animal. So it's obviously the female with maybe two or three cubs there, and she's teaching it how to kill and eat and whatever. Nothing else would have done that. Just after I bought the property in '78, and just a neighbour's property, and they were just sort of little hobby farmers, not even farmers. They just got, I think it's five acres there, with, where they just lived with their young young kids and had lambs there, it just a hobby thing, and two of their lambs, reasonable size, were dragged up in, in the fork of a tree, still bleeding. I was in the fork of, a gu- fork of a gum tree, too high to do anything about it, and the next day they went out and they were gone. An eagle won't stash anything in a tree, a fox won't stash it in a tree, a wild dog
0: won't, uh, what would? Ken was approached by the media on more than one occasion when word got out about his sighting. Ken welcomed the news crew onto his property to give an interview and a tour so they could get the shots they needed. But in return for Ken's kindness, they didn't really treat the story how they'd implied. When they come out, they took the
20: film and all, you know, real polite and all nice, and they went down the Hills of Township. Obviously, they would have interviewed twenty or thirty people, and they picked all the deals. You know, an old woman with no no, no tooth, and a bloke looks like he was drunk, and some other idiot. You know, but they they manipulate to make the situation suit themselves. Many friends of mine. I've seen it in the past, over the last 20 years, but didn't want to say anything because worried or concerned that people intimidate them. You know, that, that sort of thing doesn't worry me. I just tell to get nicked. I know exactly what I saw, and all my mates and friends that I know that have talked about it know what they've seen.
0: Andrew from Don Valley was lucky enough to see something out of place not once, but twice.
2: I live in the mountains east of Melbourne. About 60 kilometres east of Melbourne, and uh, that that backs onto the national park through the Arrow Ranges area. I work in the bush. I live in the bush. Um, I have worked in the bush for 20 years in uh, land management, um, specifically catchment management. Yeah, I think uh, you know I've got a pretty good idea of what's going on out there. I think we've been lucky or unlucky enough to, to have a couple of um, looks at this thing. The first time, my wife and I were coming back from Hillsville. There was a, a big black animal crossing the road we looked at it and looked at one another and said you know what is that it certainly wasn't anything that that was familiar to me wasn't a wallaby wasn't a kangaroo wasn't a wombat the second time I was literally cleaning a drain and uh, I looked up and there was a, a large animal it walked across and I had a real a real good look at that particular critter and it keeps coming back to the to the big cat I'm certain that what we're seeing isn't a wombat, wallaby, kangaroo, native type critter. Definitely wasn't a dog. And the thing that keeps coming back is that all the four shoulders were the same height. And that that sort of really stuck with me, I think. I'm probably gonna have to run with, you know, I don't know, but it could well be that I'm seeing a big black cat. It certainly wasn't a a hurried pace. Very, very fluid though. If I look at my cat walking across the backyard here, and this is a gray one, so I'm not getting confused. It it moves very sleekly, shall I say. That's probably the word I'd describe, you know. It was was very fluid. It wasn't a a jerky movement. It wasn't a hop. Definitely saw me, definitely was aware of me and definitely was going about its business. I must admit, yeah, with a little bit of hindsight, that sort of still freaks me a little bit. If I were to really look and really think about it, I would actually go to the Black Panther, The, the headset, ear set older set tail they all they all tie in you know i have spoken to another chap who who has stared something down in the in the bush and had the opinion that you know he could be in serious trouble he tells me he and a friend were out rabbiting and uh he came face to face with in his words a big black cat and uh i said to him why didn't you shoot it and and he said to me he said well i only had a little single shot 22 rifle he said and i I wasn't sure i was going to kill it in the late 70s, there was, uh, there was quite a lot of talk over in the Badger Creek area with, with stock and horses being mauled by, by something that, um, that had, had left, you know, wounds on them that were pretty reminiscent of, of big cat attack marks. The, uh, they've leapt onto the rear of the horse and tried to pull it down. There's two schools of thought up here, those that believe and those that believe you're a raving idiot. And uh, there, there's no grey, there's no in-between there people are seeing something the reports keep coming in you know the the national park is thousands and thousands of hectares in size and stretches virtually the new south wales the bushland anyway there'd be no effort for anything to to remain undetected i think you know some things you just aren't meant to know maybe i'm not going to know this one
0: In the north of Yarra Valley, in a place called Telangi State Forest, Dave was riding his motorbike when something unusual happened, something that Dave won't be forgetting in a hurry.
1: Me and my friend were trail bike riding. It's, you know, what we usually do. He was probably behind me, I don't know, probably a few hundred meters. I couldn't see him or anything coming down this track and I would have been doing 30, 40 k's an hour. And I just saw this sort of out of the corner of my eye, something black and moving at speed, coming towards me from the left, keeping an eye on what I was doing, just starting to sort of shit myself, you know. (laughs) As I was moving away from it, it started to sort of get closer, trying to run parallel, and I thought, oh, it's a, you know, wild dog or something. As it was running, it wasn't actually bobbing up and down, it was more sort of, you know, just steady, so to speak. I started to think, oh, well, this is... little bit weird so I started to increase speed probably getting to you know 60 70 K's an hour it's still there because I was increasing speed I was trying to you know look at the track rather than (laughs) what was chasing me and I started to lose sight of it it got all the way to the end of the track just thinking wow, that you know what was that probably a few minutes later my friend called up and I didn't say anything to him and he just he just said, what the, what the fuck was that? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, that big black thing that came out of the bush. As a kid, I used to deliver junk mail, so I used to get chased by dogs literally like every day. So yeah, i been chased by plenty of dogs in my life. I mean, if dogs like that started chasing you, I'd be pretty worried. If it was a wild dog with overgrown hair, it wouldn't really shine and shimmer like it did. Hearing stories of, you know, panthers in the, in the surrounding forest, it's, you know, it's sort of a conclusion that you sort of have to come to.
0: In August of 2012, the Department of Primary Industries funded an investigation to search for evidence of a wild population of big cats in Victoria. When I first got my hands on this report, I flicked straight to the conclusions, but I didn't have to be Nostradamus to predict the results. The available evidence is inadequate to establish that a wild population of big cats exists in Victoria. The lack of any formal evidence from considerable mammal survey effort using a broad range of techniques over many decades strongly suggests that there is no wild population of big cats. The lack of any sightings on these so-called mammal surveys didn't really surprise me, considering they're not actually out there looking for big cats specifically, and also remembering a conversation I had with herpetologist and experienced bushman Richard Wells.
10: They're a bit too dismissive these national parks expert rangers you'd often get um you know expert mammals people in national parks were very intelligent very very capable people but they'd say things like oh listen we would have found these big cats on our mammal surveys if they were out there when they've had no most of them had no experience with big cats is a is a bit of a, a bit of a joke because they would never have known they were there if they were in the areas where they were carrying out their surveys in fact, I have been on surveys where where Mammal experts were walking around looking for mammals and they're among the best mammalogists in Australia and none of them saw me watching them and and as far as I can see if they couldn't even see me watching them they'd have no hope of finding a leopard.
0: And even if hypothetically they were out there looking for big cats on these mammal surveys is it likely they'd still find anything considering at times they're hard enough to track down in their own countries? This took me back to a story told by Ken in episode five, after his experience growing up in India in an area known to have leopards.
6: There was a a walled university compound in which there was known to be a leopard and it took them months to track it down. And it was only a a university compound of of maybe, I think, less than 20 acres. And yet trying to track it and capture it was almost impossible. These are very, uh, very clever animals
0: considering the level of difficulty faced when tracking down big cats. It was hard to put any confidence in the report when I continued to read on and find statements like this. Because of the short time available for the study, it was impractical to attempt a comprehensive assessment of all available material. Instead, we attempted to quickly familiarize ourselves with the issue by seeking information from various sources. On the list of these various sources of information, I noticed Dr Johannes Bauer's name was mentioned, a wildlife biologist I spoke with at length in episode 5. Dr Bauer concluded the following when called upon by the New South Wales Government to investigate big cats in the Blue Mountains.
8: Difficult, as it seems to accept the most likely explanation of the evidence, is the presence of a large freeline predator in this area most likely a leopard. I don't find it surprising. They didn't want to promote that document.
0: Yes. Other than being on a list of references, there was nowhere in the actual report where they thought Dr Bauer's investigation was worthy of mention. The report was also quick to state the lack of SCAD evidence across the country. No big cat scats have been
5: identified during studies involving the systematic collection and analysis of thousands of
0: predator scats. The lack of scat identification might well be true, but is there a reason for that? Was the technology still that far behind or was there something more sinister going on?
5: There's the DNA swabs, there's the hair sample and here's a scat that I found sent it in to be analysed and all of it come up negative and it wasn't, it was straight off this
12: puma.
9: I collected a leopard scat from a private zoo and sent it away and it came back as a dog that had been eating swamp wallaby. It was the real thing. The scat that I sent them was reeking of ammonia.
5: So the two specialists would have known straight away it had to be a large cat. But
3: they took the easy route, the safe route, and gave what the government wanted, which was just dog.
6: And I said, well, why wouldn't you say it's a cat? I got told it wasn't worth their job
0: to do that. I also couldn't see any witness accounts or any attempt to speak with local property owners who were suffering from stock loss at the time. With such a short timeframe to investigate, perhaps it was just easier to cherry-pick evidence that would lead to a speedy conclusion. That way, everyone could hurry back to the air-conditioned office, just in time for another cheeky slice of Jules' birthday cake. But there was a comment in the report that was enough to motivate me to keep digging around. Some evidence cannot be dismissed entirely, including preliminary DNA evidence, footprints and some behaviours that seem to be outside the known behavioural repertoire of known predators in Victoria. After reading on through, I came across a couple of paragraphs deep inside the 25-page report. Although these paragraphs were quite brief, it seemed to me, considering some of the content involved, it warranted a lot more than this report allocated. These paragraphs had an underlined heading titled, The Winchelsea Fecal Sample, which I later come to learn was also nicknamed the Otway Sample. In November 1991, around 100 kilometers southwest of Melbourne, an unusual scat was found on a property near a country town named Wensleydale. This particular scat was collected by a local farmer, then handed on to a local government official named David Cass, who then passed the scat on for analysis. I got in touch with David, who at the time was a land protection officer for the Department of Conservation and Environment, based in Meredith. David's role at times involved investigating the unusual nature of stock kills in the area. Even though David was heavily involved in the handling of the Winchelsea Scat, David informed me that at no time was he contacted by the authors of the 2012 Big Cat Report. I'm certainly no expert on reports, but I can only assume David's contribution would have greatly assisted them to achieve a more thorough investigation. So I kicked off by asking David what exactly his role entailed, and if he could enlighten me on what was actually going on down there at the time.
17: Yeah, I found I was... Employed by the Department of Conservation and Environment um, between 1989 and 1993 in a, um, an area of Victoria around Meredith and then across to Anarchy and had a fairly big patch which involved state forest. We would do work on um, the eradication of foxes and uh, wild dogs and pigs. So if a farmer was losing uh, livestock, then they certainly would contact um, DCE and um, uh, we would go from there. Over time, uh, I heard about a couple of uh, reports around the Anarchy area of big cat sightings. One example which sort of stays with me was a full-grown ewe that had a crushed neck and, and didn't really look like what you'd normally expect to see from a normal sort of predation with foxes or dogs. You know, the carcasses will get torn up and there's a fair bit of mess around the place. And this one had some fairly large puncture wounds in its neck. so. It sort of got me started, um, to think, well, was there any, um, you know, truth in what people had seen? I suppose rural people too are fairly hesitant to come forward if they see things, um, they don't want to be ridiculed in their community. Um, what I found over time was a few people were fairly tight lipped about things like this. The thing that really got my interest up was reports that started filtering out of the Otways, particularly around the Dale area. There was a couple which were extremely interesting. Um, They came via the Parks Victoria office from Lawn, where two separate people had seen things and both of those examples were particularly uh, convincing to me. One account uh, on the Mount Sabine Road from a retired doctor from Melbourne and him and his wife uh, late afternoon drove around the corner and here on the side of the road in the act of moving was a described as a very large very solid muscular black cat which when it saw the vehicle coming literally sprang across the entire road and I, i spoke to that chap uh he was absolutely adamant what they saw his wife was adamant as well i spoke with her that what they saw was a black leopard now i started quizzing him about what it could have been and they were just absolutely watertight, described the muscular shoulders, the boxy head, the really, really unusually long tail, and the athleticism of this animal. I actually went down to that site to try and find evidence, but I, I couldn't find anything, but that was one. The second one was uh, um, around that same time, in the early 90s, a mountain bike rider, only about 10 k's from uh, where this site had been reported was in the process of going downhill fairly quickly. And at the base of this hill, crossed the track uh, another very muscular, large black cat. Now I spoke with him and he was absolutely watertight as well. Uh, described with muscular shoulders, the boxy head, rounded ears, this thing looked at him. He was under brake at the time and really quite concerned for his safety. Again, I grilled him as a reasonable investigator would about you know, could this have been a, a swamp wallaby? Could this have been a large feral cat? And he got quite angry with, you know, he had public safety concerns. Some of these things, including uh, a policeman from Inverleigh that came forward and said he was adamant what he saw uh, running across a paddock was a very large black cat, not a black feral cat. You know, there all these people making it up. I don't think they were. or the farmer in question that um, was involved in the Wensleydale uh, Otway's matter, uh, very good bushy. He got in contact with me in relation to what had been happening over the space of a year or so. So I went down there and he presented me with some pretty interesting things. He had a map of uh, about a 15 20k radius of his property with colored kids on it which um indicated neighbors who had seen or heard unusual things neighbors who had had unusual stock losses losses in relation to calves and um, sheep and was describing the fact that a lot of them actually didn't want this to become public because they didn't want to be inundated with trophy hunters or or, or government officials but He conveyed to me that a lot of the people he knew, and he'd been a long-term farmer in this um, patch, were solid as, they were very, you know, credible people uh, who knew, I guess, the difference between what a, a sheep looks like if it's been attacked by dogs, as opposed to what they were seeing. The nature of the kills was another thing. I recall seeing a full-grown sheep on the property in question that had been really cleanly killed, crushed neck, innards removed, no sign of them, uh, large amounts of meat missing, back leg absolutely shattered. Not the normal profile of a fox or a dog kill at all, at all. One in particular was, and I remember um, hearing this from the farmer, um, one uh, sheep was killed, uh, partly eaten, but then dragged 20 or 30 metres through a fence and left at the base of a tree with vegetative material scratched over the top of it, which I believe is pretty standard cat behaviour. They're secreting the carcass to come back and dine on it another day. It didn't fit with what you would think would normally be happening at the hands of foxes or dogs or pigs, wedge eagles, that sort of stuff. He also reported some, some really, one in particular, really unusual screeching at night time, which he'd never heard before. And he said it came from the southern uh, boundary, a cat-like screech he'd never ever heard before. Now, you know you you hear some funny things in the victorian bush some owls can sound very dodgy but he was pretty adamant that this was a really a blood-curdling kind of high-pitched cat-like noise that yeah really got his attention i, I needed uh, some concrete convincing that perhaps there was there was something more in this what i've heard and seen on this property at wensleydale i was starting to get a fairly, um, fairly healthy sort of belief that perhaps there was something in this, and, and I suppose you get that when you talk to credible people and get a sense of, you know, these, per- these people aren't making this up, it's what they actually saw. So, yeah, look, I, I um, started, I suppose, a little bit sceptical, and as time went
0: on, um, I guess my view changed. I got in touch with Bryce, the farmer who found and bagged the Winchelsea faecal sample. Bryce had some interesting stories about stock kills that were happening on his property in the lead up to finding the scat. Just out of curiosity, my first question to Bryce was to ask if he'd been contacted by the authors of the 2012 report to assist them with their investigation.
13: The only uh, word I got on that report the Victorian government did was when somebody else who I'd been dealing with gave me a call and said they're doing it. And then basically the next thing I knew about the report was uh, when I downloaded it and read it, and saw numerous references to a, a farmer at Winchelsea that had found a scat. And having been that farmer, I thought, well, surprised nobody bothered to discuss it with me, particularly when there was so much basically riding on that that evidence that there may have been an animal there. I had a lot of information, a lot of records, photographs, um, diary notes, maps, you know, and locations where animals are being killed or eaten by something that wasn't a, a normal sort of feral predator. And none of that was ever taken into consideration. So I don't see how you can have a, an accurate, and meaningful report if you haven't bothered trying to find the majority of the evidence one way or the other. I'd seen paw prints going back to 1983 and, and at that stage I looked at them and I said, no, it must have been a, a large dog. Uh, there were people nearby that had Great Dane Mastiff Crosses. Uh, that's about the biggest dog I've seen. I went and had a look and the paw print was less than half the size of what I'd seen. On a particular day I looked at my little 22 wife and looked at the paw print and I thought, I hope you're not here because <laughs> my 22 was wasn't going to do a lot. It was 1991, we were out spotlighting and spotted some eyes of a very, very bright green-yellow eyes uh, from an animal, probably 150 metres, and a good bright spotlight, but we could see no animal behind it, which said to me, you know, this thing's probably black. Not being sure what it was, I wasn't going to fire a gun at it. And then after a few moments, it just walked off slowly, still looking at us, went through a wire fence and disappeared into the bush. Then about... Four weeks later, we started having sheep killed and eaten. It wasn't just a messy kill like a dog tearing bits off and bits of wool everywhere. These animals were basically held down and large quantities of meat and uh, intestines consumed. And we're talking in a feed probably around 15 kilograms. That started the alarm bells ringing with me. This went on for a number of months. Um, sheep were being eaten by the same animal, eaten in the same way, or being killed and eaten. Um, you know, animals do die on farms. And I hunted, I spotlighted. We had cage traps set, pretty much did everything over a period of about six months. And um, we, uh, we were just behind the eight ball the whole way through with it. You know, I, I've worked on on sheep properties on the fringes of of major towns, uh, where we used to have quite a bit of trouble with dog attacks. Uh, And you'd find half a dozen sheep baled up into a corner and bits and pieces eaten off them, but some would be killed, some would be maimed. But what this animal was doing, it would basically just pin something to the ground. Some animals, you would skin the backs of their necks and you'd find some teeth marks. But then it would start opening the animal up from the back end and almost as if you put your arm inside and just pulled all the intestines, all the the organs out of the animal, the uh, the stomach and stomach contents. And the animal was going for like heart liver lung. And, and most times it would only be a, a hole torn or chewed in the, in the rump of the animal, say six inches in diameter. Um, and then if it came back on the same carcass the following night, it would then fairly neatly, open up the skin along the belly and, and eat the meat. And basically all you would have would be, say, half the rib cage, the spine, half the skull, the bottom of the skull would generally be gone and the hocks still in the skin. Not quite as neat as a, as a slaughterman would do it, but they'd just, just be laid out and this animal would just gone through and cleaned up everything it wanted. Again, you'd be talking probably another 15 plus kilos of meat consumed in that one feed. Within the the local district, our property at that stage was about 100 acres. We're running about 350 sheep, but there was another neighbour who had 400 acres, 200 acres either side of us, Uh, another neighbour with 250 acres to another corner, and then another neighbour with 140 acres. They all had sheep and were all suffering some losses uh, from animals killed and eaten or you know, eaten uh, in the same fashion. I'd been basically sort of trying to track the animal anywhere where we'd had a sheep killed or a neighbor had, had a sheep killed or eaten. I'd go around and be looking for tracks. I'd look for any signs I could find in the bush where a carcass may have been dragged to and any sort of physical evidence I could find. And in doing that, I used to carry little freezer bags in the pocket of my jacket. And if I found any droppings anywhere that looked like they shouldn't be there, I'd collect them. I'm walking along, and I noticed a quite large dropping on the ground. It would have been 150 millimetres long, probably about 30 millimetres in diameter. And I thought, well, that's unusual, large. But I wasn't sort of expecting to find something like that in the paddock. So I got the bag out, picked it up, got it in the car, and it stunk like you wouldn't believe. And that was nothing I'd come across in samples I'd picked up in the past. Um, I didn't put it in the cabin of my ute, I put it on the tray at the back. <laughs> and went back home and, and put it into our freezer.
0: Bryce then contacted David Cass at the Department of Conservation and Environment in Meredith to get some assistance.
17: He rang me one day, quite animated, and said, look, I've found this really unusual um, faeces on my property. Uh, he described it as being quite long, unusual, really pungent smell. Something he'd never, ever, a scent he'd never smelt before. And as I say, he was pretty, pretty in tune with uh, nature and, and livestock and the bush. This thing was quite oily. I traveled down there and took possession of it and spoke to him about what he thought. It certainly, to me, represented a chance to progress, I suppose, this investigation. Um, I secured the the feces at Meredith. I contacted a scientist who was probably at the top of their game in terms of a nationally recognised person to investigate this faeces from the op The other thing for insurance um, was that I only posted her by registered mail um, half of the sample. In that, something had have gone west and the parcel had gone missing. At least I had another half part of the same sample. So sealed all that up, made contact and, and posted it off or posted half of it off. But I have to say that, yeah, there was something particularly unusual about when I was packing it up, the smell uh, of the feces it, it was very different, very different. So yeah, that was posted off to uh, this scientist's lab and the results were very, very interesting. Yeah, from an investigative point of view, I knew that the Melbourne Zoo had a black leopard at that stage. And so I contacted um, one of the senior vets from the Melbourne Zoo, and arranged uh, her to get a sample of hair from their black leopard. I arranged for her to get a faeces sample from their black leopard. Arranged for those the samples down to the um, scientist who was doing the work on the faeces to compare to the Otway samples. That was the reason that was done. When she dissolved the um, Otway sample, which is what physiologists do, she found uh, bone fragments. She found hairs from a calf. And that's significant because two days before the faeces was found in the Otway, a calf was killed and eaten. And she found grooming hairs, uh, which are ingested by the animal in question when they're grooming themselves and they end up in their faeces. So these hairs, were strikingly similar, if you like, to the hairs from the Melbourne Zoo sample. That in itself was a bit like, hang on, this is uh, this is pretty good. This is pretty good evidence. Now we're starting to get a very serious sniff of what may be going on here. She found four of these black grooming hairs, basically saying that, yeah, they were, um, very, very similar to the Melbourne Zoo sample. I posted off of the second half thinking we may have found more and sure enough when she received that and did the work she found uh, more grooving hairs with the same circular shape and cross section as the Melbourne Zoo and the colour and the size. So it's basically we got a match out of the, the second half of the faeces as well. Um, so um, yeah, look it was it was starting to become fairly strong. What she found was really interesting was that the photomicrographs, which are basically when you get a hair under a microscope, they're cross cut a bit like a saw log. So you're looking at the, the cross cut of these hairs under a very powerful microscope. What she what she found was that, that in the, and in her words, there were very similar features to the zoo leopard from the Wensleydale hairs. Their size and the cortex, the color, and the size in microns were were, were basically identical. She also commented that the smell of the zoo sample was very similar also to the smell of the Otway sample. So here we had some very strong similarities between the zoo samples and the Otway samples. Uh, She certainly concluded that it was quite a possibility that the Wensley faeces had come from a big cat.
13: There was there was something odd about these samples. So she didn't come out publicly and, and say it well, was, but to me, basically she made it quite plain that it matched the samples that she got from the leopard.
0: When the physiologist finished her evaluation on the Winchelsea scat, she wrote a report and passed it on to David Cass. David was kind enough to send me this report, and it reads as follows.
16: The odour of the Winchelsea faeces was particularly strong and unpleasant. It was very similar to the odour of the faeces from the zoo black leopard. The odour was stronger and more acrid than that of any wild dog scat I have examined. Several of the black leopard hairs found on the zoo sample were very similar to the circular hairs found in the Winchelsea faeces. I concluded that there was a possibility that the Winchelsea faeces were from a big cat such as a black leopard. However, there was not enough evidence to make a positive identification.
17: I think the scientist was probably being cautious in that, to say categorically that it was, you would probably want to have DNA support that lends itself to saying, look, there there is no question, this is a black leopard. So I think there was some caution uh, involved in that regard. And and I I suppose in that light, I understand that. When she had done that work, she um, also posted me back uh, the remnants of those same hairs that she extracted. Um, So I had them back, which was great because I had some view of uh, getting further analysis done and that involved um, DNA. It was a bit of a tricky situation for me because I knew that the, um, the department wouldn't fund. And in those days, DNA analysis and mitochondrial DNA analysis was really expensive. And what I can recall, there wasn't a real lot of interest. And I think some in the department probably thought I was chasing ghosts and didn't really want to commit to getting um, this work done. So I sat on those uh, hairs for a while. They were secured. Um, no one else had access to them.
0: I put a call out on a Wensleydale notice board asking for people to share what they've seen or heard in the area. Jason was one of the people who contacted me from the call out after he and a mate saw something at the end of a long day trail bike riding through the Otways.
3: This was about three years ago. I had been out motorbike riding, dirt bike riding out the, the back of Anglesea and Aries Inlet for a whole day. This was sort of around about the three o'clock, the four o'clock mark in the afternoon. We were on our way back. To uh, the car to, to uh, finish the day up, and we were riding riding really slow as we were pretty buggered. So because we were riding really slow, the engines weren't revving that much, and it were really quiet. And as we were coming back down Gumflats Road, just near uh, the entrance to the Linbox Vehicle Testing Ground on the right-hand side, uh, just as we were almost uh, directly opposite this particular spot, we noticed uh, uh, looked over and noticed that there was uh, something quite large that seemed to be feeding on something and um, all of a sudden it, it leaped out in front of us and you know there was two of us, me and another mate, uh, it leaped out in front of us, uh, it was on the bush on the right hand side so it ran across the road and then on the left hand side in front of the testing ground there's a big flat cleared grass area before the fence line so we had uh, a, a quite an unobstructed view of this big cat that was, you know, only a few meters in front of us. It, it ran right, a, right across in front of the bikes, right across the road, across the, the flat grass, open area, and then uh, straight through the fence. When we both saw it, we sort of stopped and looked at each other, and we were, <laughs> both of our mouths were open, and we were was like, "Oh my God, what have we just seen?" The guy that I was with, uh, he actually quite regularly used to go uh, shooting feral cats up a, along the Murray River, and uh, you know, we both there and then, my God, that was no feral cat. You know, I, I think of myself to be incredibly lucky to have had such a good look at it. You know, obviously, as I was in my motorbike gear and stuff like that, I, I, I didn't have access to a phone and or taking pictures or anything like that. I wish I had it. It was uh, quite a lot larger than any feral cat that we've ever seen before, and we've seen some big ones. The first thing that got me was the, the the size of the head and the the size of the ears and the shape of the head, really big, strong, muscly shoulders and the length of the tail. The, the tail was just really really long with a quite a pronounced rounded bit at the end. Straight away it was a panther. There was a question in our mind. You know we'd heard about them before and, and whatever. And throughout my whole life, you know we used to own property in Central Victoria and you know you could regularly hear of them. Um, you know stories around there and everything but i would never actually physically had an encounter you know we had a good clear picture of it for quite some time in, in an open area so it wasn't like we saw something distorted shadow that ran through the bush or anything and then we went over to where the animal had come from and it had definitely you know been chewing on a kangaroo quite a large kangaroo so the only time i've ever seen it i travel out there quite a bit i've never seen it again I know what I saw, and it definitely wasn't a feral cat. You know, on that particular day, that was definitely a black panther that ran in front of us. It's something that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life.
0: Samantha was well aware of big cat stories from the area, but never really had a strong opinion until she came across something unusual she's never been able to explain
21: there we at the back of our property we have a creek it's quite a deep creek it's pretty shitty fence down the back there and we were two head short of cattle and so we went looking for them um also out the back there there's this most magnificent wedge tail eagle nest so you know you always go and check it out if ever you're down there so we're looking for these calves and checking out the wedgie's um nest and we come across this tree and it's kind of i suppose it's a bit difficult to convey it's because it's quite a visual interpretation. But if you can imagine a really quite a deep creek, I'm going to say probably like eight, ten foot deep creek. And then it had a big old tree with a fork that overhung into the centre of the creek. Now, in that fork of this dead old tree, there was a fully like put together kangaroo skeleton. From tip to tail, it would was a big Skeleton, like wedged in the fork of this tree. Now, it, it's not as if the kangaroo has jumped from one side of the creek intending to bounce on the other side and like wedged its body. It couldn't have done that. It's too, too far across. The water level never gets that high. Where Winchelsea South, sometimes we're referred to here as Wensleydale and other times where Winchelsea South, as i said i've always been fascinated with the idea and always wanted to to know whether it is legit or if it's just this big story that grows and grows and grows that sort of cemented no there must be something to this because the the size of that skeleton in the tree and the position of it and how the heck did it get there unless something physically you know wedged it there that's the one thing that makes me think oh no you know that there's obviously big cats in the area
0: David Cass continued his daily routine at the DCE office in Meredith, almost letting go of the fact that sitting in his top drawer may just be the closest thing to hard evidence of big cats in Australia. Then, an opportunity walked in the door. A DNA scientist that David had met a while back, Stephen Frankenberg, got wind of the Otway hair samples and kindly offered his services.
17: As luck would have it, that started my professional relationship with a scientist who was embarking on... Um, the study of DNA analysis. As a result of that, they made contact and um, came and uh, visited me at my office in Merredin. So I uh, handed over in good faith and trust. I handed over these these hairs marked in a little plastic bag, I always sample, and was expecting to hear from him somewhere down the track. Time went on and I changed. Uh, I was still working for the department, but I changed jobs. He rang me. Uh, And that was quite funny, he made me and said, you probably don't remember me. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. You're the scientist who's still got my leopard hairs. And uh, he sounded pretty excited. I remember the conversation saying, well, what have you got? And he said, well, what I have got is a very solid match to a black leopard. So we were on the phone going, yippee, Yahoo! This is um, this is the Eureka moment, I suppose. I was under the impression that it um, it could be published, and I suppose the great thing about that was, you know, finally there'll be, you know, some evidence beyond all reasonable doubt because the DNA doesn't lie. That um, that this could be um, published in a very prestigious magazine called Nature, I believe it was. He agreed that I would be, uh, you know, co-author of his, um, his scientific paper, which um, uh, I was pretty excited about as well. And the story would be told. And then over a bit of time, my initial excitement was deflated, I suppose would be an understatement. And um, he decided not to go ahead and publish this uh, document on the basis that there was a very remote possibility that the lab where the scientists did the faeces analysis could have been contaminated by the zoo samples of black leopards. I understand uh, his hesitation, but yeah, it was pretty shattering. The the results were real. Um, and unfortunately, the, the very, very extremely slight chance in his mind that there had been cross-contamination in in the lab. He couldn't take it to the full conclusion.
0: I managed to have a long chat with Stephen, the DNA scientist, just to gauge what his true thoughts were about the likelihood of cross-contamination. This isn't Stephen's voice, but this is what he shared with me. My
1: dad was always into the big cat phenomenon growing up, so when I got wind that David Cass had these hair samples, I got in contact with him. I told him I'd be interested in analysing them because at the time, I was interested in hair morphology analysis. It was only ever a theoretical possibility that the lab which held both the Otway and Zoo sample may have contaminated those hairs. In fact, if there was any cross-contamination with other hairs, you wouldn't expect it to mask the DNA from the Otway sample. It would have to mean there was absolutely no DNA at all on the Otway sample, and a tiny amount of contamination coming across from the Zoo sample, just so unlikely. Statistically, it was highly unlikely the hairs were contaminated, but I just couldn't rule it out entirely, which is why I didn't put myself out there. It just wasn't worth it. The only tiny bit of uncertainty was the source of the DNA. So regardless, the results of the test were undeniably leopard. There's no doubt about that.
17: I knew of the reputation of the scientists who did the Um, faeces analysis and I spoke with her at some length um, in relation to the possibility of that cross-contamination being an issue and I remember very well um, uh, her words to me and that were basically David I'm a scientist this sort of stuff uh, does not go on in my lab I run an extremely clean lab and I have for the last x amount of years I still believe it to this day that those zoo hairs that were bundled separately and identified separately and stored in sealed vials separately could not and were not uh, contaminated. And I stand by that and always will. I could, I could understand, um, I guess, the level of caution. And I imagine, you know, scientists in relation to DNA need to maintain a, a very high profile and a very, you know, clean sort of record. It seems like the um, sightings in that Otway region are still going on today. So it raises a question, I suppose, of is there an existing population of these things? I mean, (laughs) they're very, very hard to um, spot in the lands where they exist, according to a lot of people, particularly like the Puma scenario in America. There's people living in parts of the the country that have never seen them or didn't even know they were there, but they were and have been for years. Look look at all the evidence, look at all the, the, the different sightings, look at all the witnesses. You know, like I say, are they all making it up? One day, as I've said previously, the truth may come out and that may well be the body of such an animal on a slab.
13: I do honestly consider that to date um, i've probably found the the best uh, most credible evidence that something like that exists it's just a shame that it was uh, so rapidly discounted by the government all i would say is i don't go camping in the otways anymore
17: (laughs) the work that was done by um, myself and the farmer the um, scientist who did the um Species work and the DNA works were probably the closest anyone's ever come to proving that there was a black leopard in the Otways in the early nineties.
0: If you're enjoying Missing Panther, please tell your friends and reward us by simply popping us an Apple podcast, Facebook or Google review. If you'd like to go one step further and support the show for our efforts in putting it together, donations of all size are greatly appreciated. Just go to our website, hit the about button and scroll down to follow the prompts. If you have a story to tell in relation to big cats or would like to share some of your own research, please get in touch via our contact page on the website, missingpanther.com.au. I'd like to pass on my condolences to the family of Professor John Henry. John sadly passed away in early February this year. John's study on Pumas and the Grampians was a great insight into the potential of US soldiers releasing their big cat mascots into the Grampians. John was never too busy to take my calls and always happy to answer my long list of questions. I'll be forever grateful for John's kindness and his contribution to this podcast. And again, if you enjoy the story of elusive big cats, Rick Minter never disappoints with his UK podcast, Big Cat Conversations. If you're a little partial to a cold brewski in the afternoon, get online and order your Yarra Valley Big Cat beers. Not only are they delicious Australian-made beers, they support the search for the Aussie Big Cat. Go to yvbcbc.com and take your pick of a wide range of Dustin Frothmans. If you'd like to keep updated on future episodes, you can follow Missing Panther on Facebook or Instagram. I want to thank the voiceover dream team, Judy McLaurin, Benny Brophy, Maddie, and Ryan Glenn. Hollywood's calling, guys. Missing Panther is produced by me, Ben Bede. Music is by Warwick Party. Mastering by Paul Gomesall.